0: You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. All right. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back to the Young Investors Podcast. And uh, if you're listening as this is released, Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Uh, Happy New Year. New Year's will be coming up. In fact, will it wait? Will it have been New Year's by the time this comes out? Yes, it will have been, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. What, so, what Merry Christmas uh, New Year's and Happy New Year's. It is on Friday, New Year's Day. So, this will come out on Saturday. So, yeah. yeah Happy New Year, everybody. Wow. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly, this is being pre-recorded um, <laughs> because we are currently on holidays, enjoying a little bit of time off. However the podcast doesn't stop <laughs> it never stops the content never. never stops <laughs> we're going to be like 85 uh, what do you think of the share market navish what do you think of your positions now are Pretty you still much. investor in facebook
1: <laughs> welcome back to episode 10000 and yeah.
0: today we're talking about the good old days <laughs> you remember that company tesla Back in the day, oh, remember that Elon Musk character? <laughs> <laughs> what a guy he was. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, wow, this is going to be a f- all over the place kind of episode, isn't it? I oh, just no. feel it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's going to be really, really messy. No, but we're just going to be answering um, a lot of questions. We've got a lot of questions here to go through or a fair few. A so. uh So we're just going to go Should through and answer them as yep. best we can. Some of them we might not have answers for, but um, <laughs> we'll, uh, we don't
0: know the answer to everything, believe it or not. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> Wow, we'll, what an intro. We'll, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> what an absolute intro this has been. Oh, all right. Well, let's get this show on the road. Hamish, do that sponsor thing.
1: Yes, so today's episode is sponsored by uh, Sharesight. Uh, And Sharesight is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio. Uh, And it will basically allow you to keep track of all of the different types of gains that you experience as an investor. So capital gains, uh, dividends, dividend reinvestment plans, it will do uh, all of those calculations for you if you have one of those on an ETF or any kind of share. Uh, Currency gains, if you're buying shares internationally or you hold foreign currencies, which is super important. And then the main reason why I use it is when it comes to tax time. So, ShareSite allows you to generate up to 10 different reports that can be used at tax time to easily work out things such as your capital gains, uh, dividend income, and more. And at the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to ShareSite.com forward slash younginvestors. That's site spelled S-I-G-H-T, ShareSite.com forward slash younginvestors. And if you use that link, you can also get four months free when you sign up to a yearly subscription. So, Particularly if you're in uh, North America at the moment, uh, your tax time is right around now for Australians. It's uh, middle of the year, but uh, particularly Mm. for for those who have tax time that ends at the end of the calendar year, um, this is something that could uh, save you a lot of time and even some money um, during tax time. And uh, particularly because it's the start of the tax period, it's a really good time to set up something like this uh, if you're not going to use it for the previous year to use it for the next year. So yeah,
0: definitely. Go check it out if you're interested. Definitely. Definitely. Yep. Four months free. Pretty good. Um, okay. Well, with that said, uh, let's jump into some of these questions. So yeah, as we said, Mm -hmm. um, just before we've just been stockpiling your questions that you've left on the, uh, on the podcast, on the YouTube version of the podcast over the past few weeks. And uh, we're just going to rattle through um, some some questions. So, where do you want to start, Hamish? Where do you want uh, to start? All right. We'll start with this one.
1: I'll read this one to you. Sure. Uh, hi, gents. Uh, just a quick question. Can an
0: ETF fail? Uh, if you have an example, I would love to hear it. Mm. Um, I don't have an example, actually. But uh, I this, this one... I kind of got me thinking. I was like, oh, can an ETF fail? I don't know. Hmm. Can it? Can't it? Um, But the answer is, and it makes sense uh, that yes, an ETF could potentially fail. Uh, The way it's set up these days, there's a couple of main players in the ETF world, like the Vanguards and the Blackrocks with their iShares and that sort of thing. So Hmm. I don't think they're going anywhere. But when you think about it, I mean yes we talk about you know an ETF's just passive and it just takes your money and it invests it as per an investing objective but and that's that's usually why the fees associated with ETFs are so much lower than like a listed investment company where people are actively picking stocks but at the end of the day I mean it's the company provides these ETFs for you like Vanguard provides the ETFs mm. for you so they've still got well, they they haven't got no overhead, right? Yeah. They've still got some, although it's less than say an actively managed listed investment company where they they've got asset managers figuring out what to do here and there. There's still going to be some overhead. So uh, I guess in that aspect, then you know if they can't generate enough, I mean the ETF provider still has to generate revenue to cover that overhead. Yeah. Um, so for that reason, then yes, they they definitely they definitely can they can fail.
1: Yeah. I haven't heard of any examples of uh, an ETF failing, but I think the, I mean, if you want to avoid that or have the lowest chance of that happening, then it's its probably best just to stick to either BlackRock, which have their iShares ETFs um, or Vanguard. Um, yeah. They're by far the most reputable. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's where I
0: would uh, sit. But yeah, I haven't heard of one. Interesting question, yeah. I'm sure it would have happened, but it would have happened... On, oh, I'm absolutely positive it would have happened. Yes. But I think it would have happened on one of those smaller ETF providers. Um, yeah. And there's there's so many ETFs these days and so many ETF providers that they are kind of competing on that management fee, right? They, they're competing yeah. on price because, you know, an S&P 500 ETF is going to be an S&P 500 ETF. I mean, yeah. there's, there's no if or buts about it. Um, so, maybe some of the bigger players like the vanguards and the black rocks have the, have the size, have the scale advantage to be able to squash other ETF providers on price, uh, kind of economies of scale kind of thinking.
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah. That's definitely, that definitely plays a role. I just looked it up. Vanguard, the Vanguard group has 6.2 trillion global assets under management, which is kind of ridiculous. Really? Uh, yeah. Global. That's insane. So, uh, they're big. <laughs> that's huge.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know about um, BlackRock. I haven't- uh, Maybe I can have Man, I just made a video about this the other day. I must have been misinformed with my information because that's a lot more than what I thought. I looked- I was looking on Investopedia and they reported that they only had like 1.3 or 1.8 trillion in assets under management. Maybe that's in the US. Right.
1: Yeah. That, I don't know. That's possible. Could be.
0: But yeah, globally, that's uh, that's a lot of money.
1: Hmm. It actually says here that uh, Vanguard's the second largest provider of ETFs. After, yeah, behind BlackRock. After BlackRock. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, very interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it. No, very, uh, very interesting question. Thanks for mm. that question. Um, Thank you. Should we move on? Here's an interesting one. I, I don't know. This could turn into absolutely nothing. Have you seen The Social Dilemma? <laughs> I actually haven't seen it. Oh, um, no. Which- uh, I haven't seen it either.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I did watch an interview with, I think it was either the writer or the director- um, who made it? And uh, he he spoke about some of the I guess the key topics uh, mm. that they try and that they try and talk about about um, social media and how it's kind of that uses AI to draw you back in and and to yeah. keep you in uh, uh, just to keep you on the platform. Um, but I haven't actually seen it. So um, and as I understand
0: yeah. it, is there's so it like the the predicted. Or the things that it shows you when you type in a question are tailored to what Facebook or Google or whatever knows about you. That's what I took out of it as well. Like, If we, if we maybe had completely different political opinions um, and we Google search something about climate change, then it would present us with different websites, even if we typed in the same question.
1: Yeah, correct.
0: Um, which is pretty interesting, but I, th- well, I think at least that, the, recommendations. Um, yeah, the, rec- the recommendations. Yeah, the or the recommendations. Yeah, maybe not the. Yeah, I, I don't know. To be honest, I probably need to go watch it to understand this topic a little bit more. Yeah, but I think there is a very interesting question around that, and I think maybe the 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 one thing that stands out to me is that more so than ever before, more so, yeah, literally more so than ever before, all of these websites are trying to feed you with confirmation bias. Mm. Um, And confirmation bias is essentially where you actively seek out uh, bits of information that agree with your pre-existing beliefs and you specifically don't try and find information that goes against what – or you're you're very dismissive of information that goes against what you already believe. And obviously, when it comes to things like stock market investing, confirmation bias is a killer because – the stock market does not care what you believe. (laughs) The stock market just cares about what is right and what is wrong, essentially, you know, uh, it doesn't matter what you think about Facebook as a company. uh, The hard numbers uh, will determine whether it's going to be, you know, like a good investment or not. So um, I think it's important. The one maybe thing that we could touch on around stock market investing and, and, you know, the core of what I, I think the social dilemma is about is to just, Watch out for the confirmation bias that you are going to inevitably encounter by researching through or looking at information presented through Facebook and Google, and even YouTube with the recommended videos and all all this sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, Um, the the thing with like how people access social media now is that most of what you, I mean, if you go on YouTube, for example, most of what you're watching is from YouTube recommendations. It's very rare that you search something, at least this is in, in my case, maybe this is different for most people, for other people, but at least in my experience, it's very rare that I actually search something and watch it if i'm just looking for something to watch casually Mm. um most of the time i'm just looking in the recommendations so i'm kind of in this bubble of what youtube is feeding me based on what um i i want to see um and that's a problem if you're trying to to find out the truth for something (laughs) um Mm. you need to seek out that um actively and um most people don't do that so yeah very interesting mm. um, discussion around uh, the use of AI and, and uh, these platforms and uh, whether it's predatory to, to use uh, these sites and things like likes and, and notifications to kind of draw you back in and, and suck more uh, advertising dollars, well, I guess, viewing, advertising viewing out of you. Uh, yeah, but, exactly. Uh, yeah, big debate at the moment.
0: I'll put it on my to-do list over the holiday period to to go and watch The Social Dilemma. I think it's on Netflix, is it? It is. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Yeah, okay. yep. Yeah, I have to, have to give it a watch. All right, let's move on. Mm. Um, what about this one? Hey, fellas, Peter Lynch in his book One Up on Wall Street says that the P.E. ratio of any company that's fairly priced will equal its growth rate. I'm assuming that's annual growth rate. Um, I've found an example of a business where this is the case. Does this mean I just have to halve the current share price to get to a margin of safety or am I oversimplifying it? Cheers. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly just to give you a quick,
1: the short answer first, I think that's certainly an oversimplification of of what price you, you should pay for a business. Um, it also depends, uh, yeah, I presume you mean, Uh, annual growth rates or whatever growth rate the company-
0: Yeah, I I think it's like if if the company's growing at like 10% per year and if the P ratio is 10, then that's fair. If it's growing at 20% per year and the P ratio is 20, then that's fair. Yeah.
1: I mean, I personally, I don't put too much emphasis on a single year's growth rate, so I don't really care or I'm not trying to predict or thinking that I can predict what the growth rate will be over the next year and I certainly don't use the previous year as, as some significant indicator of, of the future. Um, I, I much more care about the comparing the price to the cash flows that I expect to get out of the business over multiple years in the future. Yeah. So, um, in that way, uh, the PE ratio doesn't really, um, you know, I can't really read anything into the PE ratio by itself, um, or even with a one-year growth rate. Um, so, I'm, I'm typically looking to, you know, uh, come up with a prediction of, of growth over the next five or ten years or maybe even longer than that. Uh, so, I think it's an oversimplification, but maybe it could be used as a way to kind of quickly check whether a business is mm. really expensive. So, you know, if it, yeah. if it has a really uh, low growth rate and it really has a really high P.E., um, then maybe you just avoid looking further into that company. But I would go much further than just looking at the PE ratio and the growth from the previous year um, when mm. figuring out what price to pay. What do you think?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a. It is definitely an oversimplification. I'm definitely with you there. Um, but yeah, that's what I was going to say. So, if, if you're going to use that, maybe use it as a quick kind of maybe a little screening tool or something. Mm. But there are so many issues with like the PE ratio just generally... I mean, it doesn't really tell you much about the company. It just tells you more about investors, um, really. Like, for instance, you, with the whole P ratio, you know, if, if it's got a P, if it's got a growth rate of ten percent per year, and then P ratio of ten, you know, there are so many factors that could mess that around. I mean, for example, maybe the next year the the uh, I don't know the company might open up a new manufacturing line which is going to triple their revenue and boost their earnings and that could throw that whole kind of thesis out of whack or mm. you know maybe the company had decent earnings this year but it's on a decline and you know that messes around the p ratio as well so there, there are a lot of things that kind of mess around that number
1: yeah um, i mean yeah just to kind of follow with that example there could be a business that has a really low p e and you're looking at their growth rate from the past year and you're thinking wow the p e is five and their growth rate from the past year is 15 percent, but if you don't look any further than that, maybe you find out that the reason why the company has such a low price compared to its last year's earnings is because maybe they lost a contract with one of their clients. That's, you know, 30% Mm. of their business. So, their earnings are set to go down significantly in the future. I think that the PE just gives you a, I mean, it's it's a backward view of their earnings in the previous year. And while for a lot of companies or for some companies, last year's earnings may be quite similar to next year's earnings, a lot of the time that's not the case. It's not the True. case for growing businesses. It's not the case for some businesses going through changes, and uh, certainly if there's a recession or something, then it's not going to be a good indication of the next year's earnings. So, mm.
0: um,
1: I don't really like using the PE at all. I actually never look yeah, at the I don't PE use it. Um, because it it depends. I'm I'm willing to pay a higher PE if the growth is higher over the long term. Um, over a 10-year period and I'm willing to pay a lot much lower PE that if uh, if the growth is lower so growth does come into it I guess Uh, it's just an oversimplification that Mm. that um, formula I think
0: yeah no I I I agree all right do you want to pick another question Uh, move
1: right along yes okay i'll give you this one it's a nice long one Um, okay sure hey guys love the show fun fact on my spotify recap you were my most listened to podcast and i managed to crank nine episodes out in one day
0: (laughs) nine episodes in (laughs) a day that's very impressive that's nine hours oh my god did you just like forget? Did you just press play <laughs> and maybe not have your sleep timer set yeah. and then that, or something? That's God. unreal. If that's legit, if you legitimately listen to nine hours of, of us yammering on about stocks in one day, then man, hats off to you. That's amazing. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> anyway, that's not the
1: question. But um, so, the question is, uh, so my question is regarding investing with debt. I'm currently 18 years old and about to enter into college here in Sweden. Uh, We have a a very good student loan system that allows me to get up to $15,000 a year with 0.06% interest and I'm granted 25 years to pay it off uh, as soon as I get a job. Uh, I won't be needing the loans for accommodation and college is free in Sweden. Uh, And seeing as I love to invest in, I'm probably going to invest it. uh, even though I've managed a 50% return this year, I'm not sure I want to manage the money myself. So basically, I'm wondering what would you do in my situation and uh, if you have any suggestions on where I could put the money.
0: That's insane. Well, first things first, we do have to say that we can't give you financial advice. Correct. Um, and uh, that's that's not our game. But that's really interesting. So you So you can borrow $15,000 a year at 0.06% interest. And you don't even have to use it for like your college is going to be free and your accommodation is you won't be needing loans for accommodation. That's that's insane. And then you're granted 25 years to pay it off after you get a job. That's a that's I don't know about you, but I would be taking as much of that money as I could possibly get. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly if you don't have to make regular contributions to mm. it then yeah I mean that interest rate is insanely
0: low that's um, insane and the fact that you don't have to pay, yeah the interest rate is so low and you've got 25 years to pay it off you know if you had a, a decent paying job then you'd be able to cover your your cost there and I mean like 25 years is a long time and if you wanted to invest it in this I mean this is kind of like just a really really cheap what we're getting to is like a really really cheap margin account mmm that's kind of what this question is turning into. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of using debt to do to to invest. Um there's a lot of problems with that, but with a with an interest rate that's so so low, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> to be honest, I probably take it because if you got a long time to pay it off, then you probably don't you you probably could just just be like a passive investor and still really come out on top. But there is obviously a bit of risk involved, like if there was any sort of pressure to pay that back yeah um that that's where you would you would come unstuck i think yeah um but there's another there's another thing where you, you could just take like risk-free returns, you could go with like fixed income kind of investments and that could probably get you more than 0.06% in which you could just use that money to make you more money.
1: Yeah. The main thing would be is if you are obligated to pay portions of it off regularly, like we are here in Australia. So, um, I mean, in theory in Australia, you don't even need to pay the student loan back if you don't meet a certain threshold of income. But as soon as you meet that threshold, you have to pay a progressively higher amount of the debt back um, to the point where uh, if you make over a hundred thousand dollars, for example, or approximately that, then you have to pay down 6% or 10%, sorry, of the the loan loan amount. So um, in that case, I probably wouldn't just because I, don't, you, you can't predict what the market's going to do in the next couple of years. So then mm. you would be at the mercy of the market in a short yeah. period of time. But 25
0: years is a long time. So,
1: yeah. Um, yeah.
0: We might be missing something here, but just from literally what you've written in the question, it seems like a pretty good deal. But yeah, if there's one bit of advice we can definitely give, it's read the fine print.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Make sure you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. And that goes for, you know, this example It goes for if you're getting into a margin account and you want to invest on margin, you know, make sure you, you totally understand what you're getting yourself into. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, all right, shall we move on from that one? Yep. Um, All right. Yeah, so where should we go next? Um, uh, let's uh, I'll ask I'll ask this one too. Okay. It's a question about ETFs. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, currently hold about 21% of my portfolio in VAS, uh, which is the ASX 300 ETF and 14% in VDHG. What's VDHG? Yeah, I'm just is that just looking total it up. market uh diversified high growth ETF. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, given that VDHG is comprised of. Um, wait a second. Given that VDHG is comprised of VAS by about 36%, mm-hmm. is this double dipping something to be concerned about in any way? VDHG has a. VDHG, man, I can't speak today, has a 0.27% management fee and VAS has 0.1% from memory. Thoughts on double dipping around ETFs? Nice. Yeah, I mean, besides the difference in management fee, it's not a
1: concern. Um, no. It just means you have more VAS, right? Um, it's not like you you miss out on it or something because you've got a little bit of in in each ETF. But if you don't want that much of of the Australian top three hundred businesses, then you know you could you could consider finding something else to to spread it out a little
0: bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if it's a concern. Um, yeah, double dipping it with ETFs is is not is not a problem. Um, like the ETFs are just highly diversified structures. So if you own like an ASX 300 ETF and an ASX 200 ETF as well, it's not yeah. a problem that you've got two that essentially own the same thing. Um, you just have to realize that you just own more of you know the same thing, and it's 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 unnecessary because at the end of the day, you need to pay brokerage fees to get into both of those investments and Mm. they're basically exactly the same but i mean yeah sorry to to butt in on your answer but yeah you're going to have you know you might have a little bit of diversification here which overlaps with a little bit with overlaps with this etf and this other etf that you want overlaps with this it's not really an issue um it's just not necessary you don't probably don't need to have five or ten different etfs i suppose
1: yeah. And I mean, if you, uh, like, I'm just looking at the ETFs that are a part of that high growth one. If you really do want to have those other ETFs, then it's probably cheaper to-
0: Wait, ETFs? So, VDHG is an ETF of other ETFs? It is. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. So, one, the biggest is VAS. The second uh, biggest this, is-
0: uh- this may- Yeah. The question makes more sense to me now. Yeah. So, the second <laughs> is- uh- So, VAS <laughs> is literally 60, uh, sorry, 36% of VDHG. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, so it, it's made up of ETFs, and there is about five of them there. So if you wanted to have the other ones, then it's going to be cheaper to hold the VDHG uh, or F mm. or whatever it was. I am not on the page at the moment. VDHG, yeah, VDHG. Um, Because otherwise, you would have to buy each other one individually. Um, but yeah, it's not a problem that it's that it's um, that it's overlapped like that at all. Right. I don't think okay. Yeah. No,
0: nah, it's not. It's not a problem. Overlapping on ETFs is not a problem. Yeah, all right. Well, that was an easy one. <laughs>
1: all right, where should Move we go? right along. Which one do you want? I don't know. Which question do you Whatever. want? This one? <laughs>
0: uh... <laughs> Do another one. Okay.
1: <laughs> Any question but that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, this one. Um, hey, guys. When using US brokerage accounts, do you immediately convert your US dollars from uh, a share sale to Australian dollars? Uh, how do you manage the exchange rate effects stemming from the timing of your withdrawal slash conversion? Yeah. Um,
0: I, I don't. I just have some... I, I don't convert if I were to sell, say, my position in Tesla, then I would probably wouldn't drag it straight back into Australian dollars after, because you know, obviously you sell the shares in US dollars. Then I'm not going to convert straight away back to Australian dollars. Mm. I mean, you can, it, it's totally up to you, but the way I structure it is I just have some of my money which sits in US dollars and then some of my money which sits in Australian dollars. And then I kind of just manage the two and I feel like, you know, if it, i think that if the exchange rates work um, then i will continue to put more convert more of my australian dollars over into us dollars but uh, i'm not particularly concerned with you know selling a position and then immediately having that cash return to my australian bank account over here i just mm. keep some money in us dollars which i'll continue to invest in the us and some in australian dollars obviously all of the 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 ways i generate income I will get paid in Australian dollars. So, the the only reason to watch out for is the uh, exchange rate effects of me putting my Australian dollars over into US dollars. Um yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah,
1: I, I typically don't. I keep money in both. Um, I think I, I think currency is, and people have different opinions on this, but I think currency for me is one of those things that I I don't know how it's going to move in the future, so I'm not right. making any bets of you know oh I'm going to move out of US dollars because I think the US dollar is getting weaker or vice versa. Um, but rather, what you said, I just keep both. Obviously, I get paid, will actually I get paid in US and Australian dollars, which is convenient. But um, I keep a little bit of both because I'm going to be buying US and Australian shares. Um, right. So, that's kind of, yeah.
0: So, we do the same thing. Yeah. Pretty much. I would be a very bad currency speculator. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen Yeah. with the Australian dollar, with the US dollar. So, personally, my approach is, okay- if I've got no idea what's going to happen, what's the best way to approach it? Oh, to have exposure to both at all times. Yeah. So,
1: And I don't really need any other currencies. So, it's not as if yeah. I'm going to be buying all these different currencies that i 100% Swiss
0: <laughs> francs. 100% Zimbabwean dollars. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I think the, the biggest driver of the change in, in Australian US dollar and any currency really is just what the central bank sets the, the yeah, risk-free exactly. rate at and- it's not something maybe you could say that okay they're likely to be higher rates in the future than now because they're so low but what's the difference between US and Australian policy that's that's really where you're sitting and it's uh, not something that I would feel comfortable trying to predict
0: who's going to change first yeah Yeah. I mean maybe if if this is something that you love keeping up to speed with and you're all across you know macroeconomic factors in the US and Australia maybe you could (laughs) you could do it profitably and you know I guess that's the whole rationale Behind forex is understanding that kind of thing um, and making currency plays to to make money. But personally, I don't know. <laughs> don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, let's get into another question. Um, how about this one? Yep. Hello, Hamish and Brandon. Thank you for this year's content. Oh, you're very I just welcome. started investing this year. Awesome! Congratulations on beginning yeah, well a hopefully a long and very profitable investing career. <laughs> um, I have a question about how to value a growth or or new company. Is there a way to calculate discounted cash flow for a company for a growth company? Sorry, with a negative free cash flow. Hmm. Many thanks. Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, yeah.
1: So I mean, in terms of a growth like uh, so, sorry, how to calculate the discounted cash flow uh, for a growth company with negative? Yeah, so I mean, a discounted cash flow is, of course, just the sum of uh, the future cash flows you expect to get out of the business, right? Mm-hmm. So. Even though the business might have negative cash flow now, um, you know, in theory, you could uh, you could come up with an estimate of what the future cash flows will be, and maybe some of those future years are still negative, um, but there may be some of them are, are, are positive, and you get a net positive for it. So, I mean, in theory, you could do it. You can't just apply a growth rate, of course, to the negative number because that wouldn't take you anywhere. You would have to plot mm. out. Um, you know, you'd have to model out what you think the next few years will be. They'll go from negative 100 million in cash free cash flow to, you know, then there'll be a positive 200 million, and then they might grow at a certain rate from there. So, um, mm. in theory, yeah, you could do it. Um, if you just model out those cash flows. Um, personally, I, I like companies that have a, at least a 10 year track record of profitability because, um, yeah. that f- for me, there's a lot of businesses that are not profitable. And then they just stay unprofitable. They just can't get the business model to work. Um, and, uh, I want to avoid companies like that. So I like companies that have a really long track record of profitability so that I feel confident that they can maintain that in the future. Kind of like the pr- a mm. proof of concept that the business actually runs profitably, um, is, uh, is something that's important to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: What do you think? Yeah. Any thoughts? Typically I just avoid companies with negative cash flow because yeah, I just just uh, wh- one of the things that burnt me in the early days is investing in companies that weren't profitable. Learned my lesson. Learned my lesson. Yeah. So, to be honest, I mean, yeah, I I agree with what you say. Yes, you could potentially model. Okay, if they're losing, you know, two hundred million, the next year they'll lose only fifty million, and then the next year they'll be positive three hundred million, and you can model that out if you understand the business and you've got a fairly good idea. Um, But at the end of the day, I just, uh, I just don't go there.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, some businesses are just their, their futures are much more uncertain. So, like the theory, of course, the theory says that you could come up with an estimate of what the business actually ends up producing but it, for each business that's not the same chance um, for mm. a business that's brand new one year day one basically let's say the the f- array of future outcomes for that business is so wide that the chance that you are correct in your prediction is so low kind of like picking the lottery ticket right but mm. but for other businesses something that's been around for let's say 80 years. And for the past 30 years, they've just kind of chugged, chugged, chugged their cash flows up at 5% per year. For those businesses, assuming, you know, other characteristics as well, uh, yeah. there's a lot uh, a lot smaller array of outcomes for the future. They might grow a little bit. They're not going to grow a ton or they might decline a little bit or they might stay the same. <clears throat> um, so, I like businesses that kind of fall into that category where the array is small um, of, of potential future outcomes and that's one and negative cash flow businesses don't fall into that category. There's just so yeah. much
0: uncertainty. Yeah, it's very unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, do you want to pick another question? Uh, yeah, this one's for you. So, uh, Brandon. Oh, okay. Brandon, listen up.
1: You All said right, that I'm you will- pr- I'm sorry. <laughs> you said that you will probably hold Tesla forever and never sell. So what's the purpose of never selling? Wealth doesn't transfer to you unless you sell. Oh, got me.
0: Got me. He's a fraud. Well, that's that's true. I mean, well, the wealth could potentially transfer to you without selling if, you know, a company decided to start paying a dividend and you kept holding that over time. But you're right. Until you sell, you haven't made any money. It's all unrealized gains. Um uh, I think some people take take me a little bit too literally, because um, yeah, I mean, maybe like one day when I'm like old and decrepit and I'm about to die, maybe I'll buy some Elon Musk life saving <laughs> implant with my <laughs> Tesla stock. <Who> <laughs> um, but yeah, like obviously, it's all it's all unrealized gains into yourself, so. Ideally, I'd like to hold them for the vast majority of my life, but maybe if, you know, winding down retirement or whatever, maybe I'll sell them and go on holidays or something or buy a yacht or <laughs> buy a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that there is a point of never selling. You could, you know, pass on your share portfolio to your... Um, your kids or something like that. But then again, in Australia, I mean, you still have to pass on also the eventual capital gains tax to your kids if if they, if they inherit shares. So maybe you should sell, maybe you could sell them and then just pass on the cash to your kids. Uh, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. But yeah, yes, obviously like people take me literally, there's probably going to be a point in time where I sell, um, once I say, you know, enough's enough and I just want to go and live on an island somewhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's cash. But what out. do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think you're right. Like people take you a little bit that's a little bit too literal. I think the ideal is that you can buy a business and you never have to sell it. But the reality is that there will be something that changes in the business that will require you to to sell, or maybe there's a better opportunity that you find that that you move money into. Um, Mm. but that's kind of just the ideal is to, to never sell. Um, because, uh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, as you said, if you get to retirement, you're going to be trimming some of that, whether that's coming from dividends or whether you're selling some of the Mm. shares. There's you, yeah,
0: there's, uh, I think, uh, I think the quote here is a Warren Buffett quote where he says, our favorite holding period is forever. Mm. And that's not necessarily meant to say that he just wants to hold the shares for the rest of his life. Really, what he's trying to say there is he ideally he'd love the business to perform perfectly for, you know, so that he never has a reason to sell it. Correct. Because, I mean, what we're trying to do, I don't know, we try and buy into companies that'll give us, you know, 15% return each year and if the company can keep doing that then there's no reason for us to turn around and sell it because you know they they're getting, you know, they're getting great returns for us as what we are expecting so that's kind of where warren buffett says, you know, fav- favorite holding period is forever but it's more that fact i suppose that he he wants the business to stay good forever hmm. uh, he doesn't want to have to sell it I suppose.
1: Yeah. I mean, investing is just all about foregoing something today or foregoing money today to have more in the future. And obviously, there's a point at which you want to draw on that. Otherwise, you're always just foregoing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you're always in the negative. <laughs> so, so, obviously, there's a point at which you start to draw that down um, or draw some f- from it. it. It might not even be going down and you might just be drawing something from it. Um, but- the idea is when you're young, when you have plenty of years ahead of you, that if you can forego a little bit of money now, it will be worth a lot more for you um, in in many years down the road. Um, so, yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. All right. Let me ask this one to you, Hamish. Mm-hmm. You ready for this one? Hard hitting, Hard hitting oh, question. No. Hey, guys. I'm curious if you have sold any stock recently. And if so, could you walk us through your thought process behind it? Have you sold anything recently? I haven't sold anything
1: in years. So, me neither. uh, it's I, <laughs> kind of funny. The last time, let me think, the last time I sold something was in January of 2018. So, there you go. Jeez. It's almost three years. Uh, That's good.
0: That's awesome. Since
1: I've sold something, and the reason I sold that, just to kind of give something to this question, was because I didn't understand the business. Um, I was going through a period where I was I kind of wanted to fix my portfolio a little bit. I had yeah. my foundation of of my ETF, which is still there today, so that was solid. Um, but there was individual businesses that I didn't understand in my portfolio, and uh, fortunately, at that time, some of them had well the ones that I sold, which was like Google, for example, um, app they'd gone up significantly, which was fortunate because it could have very well been the other direction. Um, but I just wanted to, even though they were up and that kind of makes you validate the fact, Oh, maybe I do know something about these businesses. I really didn't. Um, and the logical mm-hmm. thing All to right. do is when you don't understand the businesses to get rid of it, regardless of whether you're up or whether you're down. Um, So, that's that's why I sold those. But then since then, I've only invested in a couple of businesses. I think four. Um, But I've invested significantly in them because I've been very confident. But um, yeah, not recently. No.
0: Yeah, me neither. I can't even remember when the last time I sold was. But um, definitely nothing recently. Maybe when I decided to clear some of my Tesla shares off the table. Yeah. I think I cleared my original stake. After it had gone up, like at that time, this was pre-split. It went up to like a thousand dollars a share or something. Yeah, that's right. And then it was looking like it was crazy overvalued, so I decided to clear my original stake. So I'm just playing with house money. Yeah. But geez, I'm <laughs> lucky I didn't sell all of it. <laughs> in hindsight, obviously, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty insane. Yeah. But no, I yeah, I I don't I haven't sold anything. Because I've my thoughts or opinions have changed, yeah, uh, about a company. Like, I was still bullish on Tesla in the long term, but um, obviously, it was so overvalued and still is that I decided that I would co- at least cover myself so I couldn't lose money on the position ever. Hmm. So, that was my last sell, yeah. Uh, I probably don't intend
1: on selling anything in my portfolio unless something dramatic happens. Probably for, yeah. for a very long time. Nothing. And
0: yeah, no, I, don't, I don't, don't imagine to sell anything either. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Not too much to say. I think say.
0: we're at the point now where we're quite confident when we buy things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where we, we've, you know, we've done our due diligence. We understand what we're getting ourselves into. And, so i don't I think in the in the vast majority of cases, we won't ever have reasons to sell our investments that we get into. There may occasionally be one or two businesses that we buy where it's just like, "Oh, something has changed, this is not good," and then we need to make a quick exit, yeah um first maybe something we didn't see coming or yes just something fundamentally changes the CEO steps down and a, and a some loser comes in and runs <laughs> the company terribly or something like that but for the vast majority of positions I'll imagine we would not have a reason to sell them you'd hope not otherwise we're probably not doing enough <laughs> research at the start hope not
1: yeah no yeah. exactly yeah mm. all right um, I'll, uh, I'll read this one to you um Oh, yeah, sure. Hey, Brandon and Hamish, great podcast. Thank you very much. Um, what are your thoughts on ARK investing?
0: I think we spoke about this not too long uh, ago, did didn't we?
1: we? Uh, maybe we did. Yeah,
0: I think maybe maybe a couple of podcasts ago. ARK is, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. How do you describe them? They're, they're a group of people that like to invest in disruptive technologies of the future. Yeah um and i applaud them for it like go for it i think that's really cool you know it's a it's a fresh approach to investing where you're not just you know a lot i i have a lot of issues from the value investing approach with the way the arc invest go about their investing and that being that they they don't want to see the 10 years of consistent cash flow and steady growth and and blah 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 and a fair valuation and whatnot they their investing strategy is more just based on what do you th- what do they think the world is going to look like in 40 years and try and get into the companies that are pushing us into that direction. So they're just trying to they're just trying to be the first, I guess. Yeah. Um, which leads them to invest in some companies that, you know, are not, I guess, not not pro well, I wouldn't say not proven, but are very early in, you know, in the process. Um, which kind of, you know, I, I do applaud them for the way that they go about their investing. And it has been very lucrative for them. They've done very, very well. Um, it's not the way that I typically go about my investing. I mean, I think it's cool. And I think that more investors should look to the future and think long term, think about how the world is going to be in 40 years and then kind of work backwards through those industries. But um, I still definitely like that Warren Buffett kind of approach to investing. And I think I'll continue to follow that. But... Um but no, I, I, they've done very well, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, big ups to them. Hmm. I mean, they have. I don't know, what do you, what do you think? They have done very well. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it's just not my investing style. Um, I, I wouldn't back myself to pick the the one in a hundred or one in a thousand company that explodes, you know, on it consistently, and just build hmm. a portfolio of of businesses that are that, um, I kind of in industries that are just, you know, starting and we don't really know what the landscape for them looks like. I, I much prefer businesses with a proven track record in a pretty unchanging industry so that I can expect a pretty similar future, you know, than the recent past or a pretty similar recent future to the, to the recent past. So it's not my <laughs> investing style. Um, you also have to pay up for businesses that they're investing in, like you're paying a you know a thousand PE or whatever it is for Tesla at the moment. You're paying mm. up for for the hope of of it being something big in the future, and again, that's just not not my style. But they've done very well, mm. certainly yeah, significantly
0: yeah. on the back of uh, of Tesla as
1: well. So,
0: I think it, yeah, definitely it's on the back of Tesla, but I think it's an interesting approach. Um, yeah, yeah looking more at how the world's going to be as opposed to just like what the cash flows are of this business and that business. But yeah, no, um, good luck to them. Yeah. I like that style of thinking. So I definitely wish them, wish them well. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. What about, uh, let's do, 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 do. All right. Let's talk about this one. Question: Does the average stock market return of about seven to eight percent in Australia uh, include dividends as a part of that return, or is it only, uh, or is that return only reflecting the growth of the stock price? Mm. Yeah,
1: so I don't know about this seven or eight percent figure, but the I think it's the past hundred hundred years or
0: ninety years of of the ASX. Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually more than that. It's like a 150- hundred 17, 118 right. years. Right, okay, yeah. yeah.
1: So, I, I think the return on that was uh, about 13% and 13%, it does include, yeah. that
0: figure does include dividends. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it does. I The reason I can understand, I always say in my videos what you should expect from passive investing is about 7 to 8%. And that the reason I say that is because when you start looking at, you know, the Australian market and what happens over in the UK and also, you know, like in China and also in the United States, then you start to – once you kind of average them all out, you start to get around 7 8%. Hmm. So, that's what I tend to say on the channel just to be conservative. But yet, um, in Australia, we do have a, – we're a bit of an outlier where we've had 13% annual average returns for like 120 odd years, which is just phenomenal. Um, but yeah, that exactly right. What you just said, that definitely does include dividends as a part of that return. Um, one one thing as a little way to figure out whether it does or doesn't is that usually when you see these bits of research, it will track a particular index. So, it might be the S&P 500 or the ASX 500 or the All Ordinaries or something. If it says accumulation index, then it means that it's including all of the dividends associated as well. Hmm. Um, so, I think in that bit of uh, research um, for the Australian market, it's the- ASX, or that's the All Ordinaries Accumulation Index. Right. Um, that they use. So that's your indication that, yes, it's, it does include dividends as well.
1: Right. Okay. Done. Question Easy.
0: answered. <laughs> All right. Here's another one.
1: Um, hey, Legends. Thank you. Hey, hey. hey you're a legend. G'day. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts <laughs> on the ten cap method for buying property in Australia. Uh, I have been looking around, and it seems impossible to buy at a ten cap. Uh, also, uh, how does a mortgage factor into this? Any thoughts
0: mm. on that? <laughs> I got to say, I'm I'm not much of a property investor, um, so I don't uh, I don't really know much about the property market. But mm. I mean, what you can find is that. Well, I think the ten cap method is is actually uh, born out of real estate investing, right? And then people just kind of started applying it to everything, applying it to stocks. Is that right? I'm pretty sure that's right.
1: Yeah, at least that's yeah, um, that's kind of what Phil Town talks about.
0: Yeah, right. But you definitely, I think that you can use a lot of. You know, even the stock market valuation kind of ideas, maybe you can't exactly use the method that, you know, the exact method, but you can use very a lot of the ideas of how we value businesses and you can uh, evaluate real estate as well. Mm. Um, so, because uh, at the end of the day, it's investing is a game of like what you're saying. Uh, in a couple of questions ago, it's a a game of foregoing something now for getting something back later. And the way that we go about our investing is very much looking at cash producing assets of which property is one and uh, figuring out what are the cash flows going to be from that property or or from that business in the future. And and thus, how much are we willing to pay for it now? Um, So you can definitely, you know, apply the 10 cap. You can even probably do a little discounted cash flow kind of thing. Um, on a property investment as well. Yeah,
1: you uh, absolutely can. And I, I remember at university when I did uh, property investment as a unit, uh, the the way that we valued properties as investments is pretty much the exact same way I value businesses as investments. Right, today, okay, there you go. Which is uh, basically you take all of the income you're going to generate from that property you're expecting to generate from that property. You subtract all the maintenance costs, um, your mm. interest expenses, all of the costs associated with it. And you discount those cash flows based on what return you're targeting. So that's Mm. exactly how we went about it. Um, But yeah, you're right. A 10 cap is, I mean, in Australia, you're not going to find anything like that. I think most properties will be a 3%. So so a a very small um, yield. Uh, Damn, compared to their prices, just because prices are so high, but at the same time, interest rates are very, very low as well. So that yeah, kind true. of factors into it. And I mean, it, yeah, I mean, if you're looking at it that way, just at the pro- the price of the property compared to like net cash flow out of it, three um, percent might seem terrible. But remember, we're also using debt, so you're you're amplifying your return. That's you, true. That's a good. And point. if you're comparing the the cash flows you get out of it out of the property to just the down payment and then the mortgage payments you have to make, what it costs. Then you. Yeah. the investment return is is a lot different. So um, that's true. That's something to consider. But
0: mm, that's true actually, because a lot of people think a oh, return on investment and they think, oh, how much does the property cost? But in, in reality, your return on investment is how much you've had to how much of your money you've had to give out versus how much money you've gotten in return. So yeah, exactly right. Factor in that the amount of money you've had to pay is obviously your ongoing mortgage payments and interest payments and the down payment. Hmm. That is a very good point that I completely forgot about. But um, I'm glad you brought that up because it's very important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, okay, should we uh, should we move on? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, sure. Let's, uh, let's go through this one here. G'day, Brandon and Hamish. To forecast future cash flows when evaluating a company, do you use the free cash flow or the owner's earnings? Hamish, I know you use the owner's earnings. But have heard you refer to using free cash flow in an earlier podcast also Phil Town sometimes says free cash flow and sometimes says owners earnings. Mm. Why would you use one over the other? Cheers. I'll let you take this yeah, one. Yeah, I mean I,
1: I sometimes I say free cash flow because I think it more investors are familiar with the term. So it's just mm. an easy way to to kind of describe approximately what I'm talking about because ideally though <laughs> Yes, ideally I I, per, I always use owners earnings. Um and owners yeah. earnings is very, very similar to free cash flow, which is why I sometimes use them interchangeably when I'm talking broadly um, about, you know, estimating future cash flows, for example. Um, but owner's earnings is preferable, and the reason why is because. Uh, free cash flow, well, owner's earnings uh, only subtracts the money that's spent on physical assets that are maintaining, so maintaining physical assets, rather than the money spent on um, physical assets that are intended to grow the business. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, you uh, you don't want to include those growth capital expenditures; they're called. Uh, because basically I see that as being a a distribution to me, even though it's not money that's coming directly to me. If a business spends money on building a new restaurant, for example, it's contributing to returning money to me if it's a good business, because that new restaurant will produce cash flow, it will grow the cash flows, and then that should grow the value of the business in the future. Mm. So um, I always use owner's earnings.
0: Yeah, yeah. and free uh, cash—sorry, free cash Um, flow—growth capital expenditure is not. You know, the company doesn't need to spend that to maintain what the business is currently doing. Um, So the reason we use uh, uh, we use owner's earnings is because we're just trying to find that number where it's like, okay, what is the cash flow of the business operations? And then subtract all of the necessary money that they need to put back into the business to keep it running as it is. Hmm. That's the number that the the owner's earnings is. And that's the number that we would like to use. And then free cash flow is Obviously, the cash flows that the business are making minus the maintenance portion of the capital expenditure, but also minus all of the capital expenditure they've used to further the business and grow it. But actually, for for that that number that we like to use, we basically would always like to grow our our um, our owner's earnings, which is. Operating cash flow minus maintenance capex. The reason that sometimes we just use free cash flow instead is because sometimes it can get very difficult to try and uh, to try and figure out the owner's earnings because obviously companies don't have to report. Um, don't have to report their capital expenditure as growth and maintenance. They can just lump it together in one number. So sometimes it can be quite difficult to figure out well how much money was actually spent on maintenance, how much was actually spent on growth. So sometimes to be conservative, we just use the whole thing and just go free cash flow. But
1: yeah, yeah, yeah free cash flow is yeah. just a more safe or more conservative estimation of owner's earnings,
0: basically. Yeah, where you more conservative but less accurate. True. Yes. yeah, Because we want to get as close to the actual number as possible.
1: Definitely. Yeah. 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 The other thing I'll mention is uh, for a lot of businesses, um, and this is the reason I was thinking of this because because I, I, I was speaking to someone about this the other day. For some businesses, free cash flow and owner's earnings are going to be very, very similar. So then there's mm. actually some circumstances where it's not actually worth just sitting down and spending a couple hours working out what owner's earnings is. Uh, and the circumstance yeah. in which that is the case is where uh, cash flow from operations is significantly larger than the capital expenditure figure. If that's the case, then estimating that half of CapEx is growth or that 25% is growth is not going to make a big difference to the number. So, in those cases, I use free cash flow just as a quick shortcut. But for other businesses that are really capital intensive, uh, it will make a big difference what your estimate is. So,
0: Yeah. Or companies that are just going pedal to the metal growth Think of like a Tesla. The, uh, the, I would say minimal, m- uh, very small amount of their capital expenditure would be just in maintaining what they've already got. Most of it is going to be pumped into. I mean, they're building like four or f- yeah, like four factories <laughs> at the moment. On different continents, like most of their money is going to be going towards growth projects. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the other thing to consider. But, yeah, hopefully that answers the question. And I do believe that that is all the questions that we had. Yeah, that's everything we've got. We've worked through everything. We've reached the wow. end.
1: Thanks, everyone. We have. Thanks, everyone, so much for... for- asking a lot of questions over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Most of these just... uh, Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Most of these came in really quickly and um, we will, of course, be doing more Q&A in our regular podcast as well as uh, we'll probably sprinkle some uh, some special, some Q&A specials as well throughout uh, the beginning of uh, 2021 and throughout 2021. So, make sure you head over to the YouTube version of the podcast at youtube.com forward slash the young investors podcast or you can just search for it on YouTube. Click on the latest episode and uh you can leave your questions or topics or anything like that feedback anything at all uh in the comment section there um but uh yeah that's just about it thanks share site for sponsoring as always sharesite.com forward slash young investors if you're interested in checking
0: that out uh thanks brandon for joining me as always No worries. That was good. Man, time really flew there. It did. That was surprising. I just got stuck on this Google Doc and I didn't look back and then I looked over to my little recorder and it's like 57 minutes or something. It's like, oh my gosh, I've been sitting here for an hour. (laughs) Yeah. That's unreal no it was good fun really good to to listen to uh, to hear what you guys are asking about and to hopefully provide some value <laughs> we can provide more value on some questions than others but uh, no we appreciate you guys asking the questions hopefully we can be of some assistance still provide a little bit of entertainment along the way and uh, that'll do us once again uh, hope you guys had a good Christmas and New Year and we will be back uh, next week right yeah next week all right sounds good see you later guys see ya